0: Shamai hello and welcome to the New York Welsh Podcast, the podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while inspiring the creation of some new ones. Hopefully, I'm Gideon and I am Richard. Shamai Richard, Shamai Gideon, Gobethio eich bod an at ato benod hefyd. That means, are you looking forward to today's episode?
1: Ah, I teen Shadow Kamrag? Nah, do we liven Shadakamrag? On Draidi Weddy Borden Dusky, my shavy mademoy. Yes, my
0: shavy marvamoy hevid. So, uh Richard, perhaps you can tell everyone listening how we met.
1: Well, we met at uh a place called the Sunken Hundred, which uh, was a Welsh pub uh based here in Brooklyn. Um sadly is no more, and we actually have uh, our very first episode yeah. was on uh, the Sunken Hundred, or certainly on its proprietor, Ildid Barrett, um, where once upon a time they conducted some free Welsh lessons, uh, which I attended, which you did also. That's right. That's where we met. It's okay. actually where the very idea of this podcast was first seeded. It's true. It was at the bar. Mm. Um,
0: okay, so we attended Welsh lessons together. Can I ask you, why was it important to you to learn Welsh? as an adult now you know
1: yeah well i guess welsh being welsh has always been a big part of my identity who i am growing up and i think to not speak the language always felt like a missed opportunity to me so when i heard that they were you know they were doing these lessons i thought well you know this is a perfect opportunity um you know for me to learn um, most of my a lot of my family most of my extended family speak welsh for some of them it's actually their first language oh which one my mother's side well both sides speak welsh but my mother's side mostly you know that would be they would say it was their first language certainly the my gra- my grandmother her sister my uncle and his wife
0: i didn't actually know that that's very cool uh okay so how did it come to be that you yourself
1: don't speak welsh like wh- like you didn't learn as a child got it right so no. so i although both my parents are welsh i was actually born and grew up in england uh, in a town called solihull in the midlands uh, which, for those who don't know, is about two hours north of London. Um, we used to travel to Wales two, three or four times a year. We'd go down for holidays, um, and as a child, yeah, I'd be there a lot. And I, I, from what I heard, I think I did speak like early age because my mum did speak both to my sister and I Welsh, but I think it just over time it just dropped away. Um, what happens if you don't use it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I could always I could always understand when seeing family, and they would often speak in Welsh to me, and I'd answer in English. Um, certainly the regular conversational stuff. How have you been? How school? Have you got a girlfriend, Richard? All that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I'd always mostly respond in English. A bit beyond the odd like phrase.
0: Yeah, okay. I,
1: I mean, actually, I, I was going to say that's
0: fairly typical, but it's actually not. Like a lot, There's a lot of Welsh people that just don't speak any Welsh and never, never did, even as children. So the reason I don't speak Welsh, I actually think I've told you this before. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's many situational factors historical etc but the, <laughs> the, the reason i don't speak welsh personally can be traced back to one decision i made at the age of 11 uh, when selecting which mm. secondary school to go to uh, my mother gave me the choice between goyer the only welsh medium school
1: in swansea at the time or Across the road from it, Gowerton, the English yes. speaking school. Yeah, uh, you did mention this. You told you told I learned about this on our episode we did with uh Sir Carl Jenkins.
0: I saw when I told you. Uh, okay, you did? yeah,
1: because didn't he go to one of them? He went to Gowerton, right. same as
0: me. Okay, the non Welsh so, uh, school. So there we are. So I've just told you. I okay. chose Gowerton. And I think the idea of going to a school where I didn't speak the language, you know, especially at the age of eleven. Right. Was was scary. It was intimidated for my eleven year old self the other reason i didn't go is because i already knew one boy that went there and i didn't like him
1: <laughs> so i went to the other one how and... many decisions of our lives come down to that <laughs>
0: factor right and you know i've always regretted that here we are 23 years later and uh i'm still trying to attain the thing uh, i rejected as a child
1: huh. so why, why was it important to you then when why did you start doing the lessons
0: um i think same as you i I've often wished that I could speak Welsh. Um never never got around to it. It's a lot of it's a lot of work. When I lived in London, it didn't feel so impossible. I think I bought a book or two, had some CDs, I was like, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, mm-hmm. but I never did. Right. And then I moved to New York, and I think the distance, you know, across the yeah. Atlantic made me think if I don't do it now, there's a chance that I just never will. Right. So when, when, yeah, when they said they were doing the Welsh lessons, it was, um, it was Howell that told us, Howell right. John, another episode that
1: we, we yeah. did. Um, episode two, actually.
0: It's or not, no, we released it in a different order. It's episode four or five or something.
1: Ah, we just recorded it a second, didn't we? That's it,
0: yeah. Um, he told me about the Welsh lessons and yeah, I immediately knew that was something I needed to do. Um, You've, Lived outside of Wales most, all, question mark, of your life?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah I lived in England and up until the age of 22. Then I was in Australia, mainly for the best part of four or five years. And then since then, yeah, I've been here. Okay,
0: so be, uh, being Welsh is a talking point, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, um, for sure. Do you get asked a lot, do you speak
1: Welsh? Uh, you know what? I don't, because I'm not sure... I'm not sure the majority of people even know that Welsh, Wales has its own language. I know. Isn't that terrible? Mm. If if they do find out, they go, like, oh, that's great. I know yeah, that. and then they kind of mumble something about, like, Irish or Scottish Gaelic, and then, yeah, things can move on. But, but most people are excited. And then if you speak, I think the interesting thing is if you speak it. People, the, the astonishment on people's faces, because I think people that have this misconception that there will be, Welsh will be some... You know dialect versions you know different version of english yes the- and then when it's so it seems so foreign uh, their mouths they're always
0: congratulating you oh that is very different yeah
1: <laughs> yeah oh yeah bemoan me for
0: not actually <laughs> knowing just that it's gonna be like a really strong accent of speaking english um well so i lived in uh london 10 years before coming to new york now i live in new york and uh certainly certainly living in london people would say do you speak welsh and, okay. and, you know, you go into this explanation about, oh, you know, it's not it's not actually very common. I'm from the south with a big city. And I found myself basically apologizing for the fact that I don't speak Welsh. Mm. So that that's definitely another another reason I, I wanted to learn. Got it. Okay, so you might have gathered our episode today is going to be a departure from our usual format. Today, I am going to put forward a case for learning Welsh as a second language. Even for those of us who don't speak Welsh, it's still part of our daily lives. If, if you live in Wales, uh, you know, you see it in the place names and the road signs. It's on the forms from the post office. Uh, we hear it on the television, the radio. We sing it at the rugby. But for the most part, you wouldn't hear it at work or in the shop or in the pub. The number of Welsh speakers in Wales is dwindling. And I think it would be correct to say that none of us want the language to disappear right i mean uh, but i do believe there is a feeling of complacency a feeling that well someone somewhere is speaking welsh and they're keeping it alive so i don't need to worry about it but still the numbers are dropping
1: yeah. i didn't i wasn't aware of that because i think you know i always got the impression that um uh, and I'm, I know that I'm sure you'll come on to this but things were at least ever since they kind of made it and is it is it mandatory in schools now or at least a, a lot of schools
0: it's. Ma- I don't know about now. When I was right. in school, we had to do an hour a week. Yeah. And, I mean, an hour a week is not enough to pick anything up. And also, the yeah. lessons that are only an hour a week, you you got you got Welsh, RE, uh, computer literacy, which is basically just touch typing, and you get. I don't know. The implication is that oh, well, these are nonsense lessons. Yeah. I might not leave that bit in the podcast, but
1: that's certainly how I thought of it. Yeah. You know, I was like, this is a DOS about less. Yeah, it I'm doesn't not, feel like it. Ta- well, the school's not really taking it seriously if they're only giving it an hour a week. Exactly, and things
0: might be different now. Like I said, I don't know what the curriculum is, but uh, I mean, I certainly didn't take a GCSE. I took German. I like, I like German, but you know, I don't use it obviously. Um, have you ever heard the phrase "Kennetel heb yith, kennetel heb gallon"? No, what does that mean? It's, it's an old Welsh saying. It means a nation without a language is a nation without a heart. Hmm. Okay. Which, I think, which I think shows how entwined the language is with our culture and our heritage. And uh, on the episode today, to, to better understand what Welsh means to Wales, we're going to talk in, in broad strokes about the history of the language, uh, its rise and fall, and about how it's finding its place in the modern world. I think there is a perception that Welsh isn't the most useful language to have in our international, multicultural, modern world. I mean, you know, people, anyone who says that, you can see where they're coming from, right? Yeah. I hope to persuade our listeners otherwise. I know there is a certain amount of trepidation around learning Welsh or just using the Welsh that you might have. It can be intimidating, no doubt. Kamarag is rich with sounds and rhythms that might seem very alien to our English-speaking tongues, but I want to let everyone know that in our lifetimes anyway, it has never been easier to learn Welsh. It's never been more available anywhere in the world, in fact, not just in Wales. Okay, so, Rich, I've got some statistics to get through here. Another good statistic. I'm aware that they can get a bit dry, so I don't want to dwell on them, but at the same time, I don't want to go so fast that people can't take them in, so you'll have to bear with me a couple of minutes.
1: Okay, get a pen. Get a
0: pen. Everyone listening, get a pen. pen and paper. There will be a quiz. So, in around 1750, when the population of Wales was approximately 450,000, it is estimated that 90 percent of the population spoke only Welsh.
1: Wow! Say that again. What and when? In, uh, 1750. 1750.
0: When the population was 450,000, oh, so less than half, half a mil, 90 yeah. percent of the population spoke only Welsh, and. You know, at this time, Wales is an overwhelmingly
1: rural country. Right. And it has independence? Like it's known as a... No. No. It's very much under English rule at this point. Okay. Uh, 50 years
0: later, 1800, population of Wales has increased slightly, 600,000. And it is estimated, and these are only estimates, mind you, from, from back then, that 80% of the population spoke only Welsh or spoke w- both Welsh and English, and 20% were monoglot English speakers.
1: What does, what does monoglot mean?
0: Monolingual. They only speak one language. Oh. Have you ever heard of a polyglot? Polyglot is someone that knows, like... Ten of them. Exactly. Ten languages. People that just obviously are gifted with... I don't run in those circles, Gideon. <laughs> my cousin. Oh, my really? cousin. he um, He's American. He's from Arizona. Uh, his dad is, is a Welshman from Swansea And my cousin, he decided to learn Welsh as a as like a teenager Maybe in his early 20s He came and stayed on a farm in West Wales And I think he was there a whole summer And the deal was, I'll work on your farm, you teach me Welsh Or, you know, basically you speak only Welsh to me And he still got it, he's still got the language But he now speaks, I'm going to make this number up Like, 10, 12 languages, including several from the Middle East. Wow. Okay, so, 40 years later, the Industrial Revolution is well underway. And the population has grown to around a million, of whom 700,000 can speak Welsh. And 40 years ago, there was only 600,000 people in all of Wales. But now there's 700,000 people speaking Welsh, but they only represent 70% of the population as opposed to the 80% we right. saw at the turn of the century. So there's a decline even now just with yeah. uh, the, the migration into the cities. Bear in mind that the industrial captains of the time would have been English most likely, and so they would have been expected to be communicated with English speakers, and there are other factors that we'll get into later. Jump forward to the 1891 census, where the figures become a little more specific. The population of Wales is now 1.7 million, of whom 910,000 speak Welsh. Okay, so uh, just over 50% now. Exactly, but now that figure just represents 55% of the population, leaving us with 45 monoglot English speakers. 20 years later, much shorter period of time that we jump in now, 20 years later, the population of Wales is 2.4 million. And the 1911 census puts the ratio of Welsh speakers to English-only speakers at 43 to 57. The English-only speakers now outnumber those who speak Welsh.
1: Right. And the increase in the population, is that related to births or is, is there a migration? Like, are people coming to Wales from other places or...?
0: Well, yes, in fact. I mean, South Wales was a hub for industry at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And there was an influx of workers from Italy, Spain, England, and from Ireland, where people were fleeing the potato famine. Right. You know, and some of these immigrants, they would have brought with them their own languages, which aren't accounted for in the census figures we just read out. And then they, their children would have stayed to become Welsh, but perhaps not Welsh-speaking. mm But it's first two, of course, because the population of the world exploded at the time with the Industrial Revolution. You know, with access to fossil fuels, with that comes mass agricultural programs and, you know, just the ability to support more
1: life. And medicine? Was medicine a thing at this point? I mean... It's got to be. It's always advanced. All
0: all the things that keep us alive.
1: Mm -hmm. So, let's look
0: at the current figures, which I am reading from the statswales.gov website, Okay. It gives us a little more detail again, in that it provides a percentage figure for those who can speak Welsh, those who cannot speak Welsh, and a percentage figure for those of us who have some Welsh-speaking ability. So now now there's like the three categories. Uh, And it's worth remembering that now, modern day, the population of Wales is three million. Okay, so, 2016-17, we've now got just 20% of the population who can speak Welsh. Remember the figures from 1801? It was 80% then. So in 220 years, that 80-20 ratio... Has it's completely swapped. Exactly. It's completely flipped. The figures then go on to say that 71% cannot speak Welsh and 9% have some Welsh-speaking ability. I, I do wonder about the legitimacy of those claims. Like, is that is that someone who's 11 years old and is doing an hour Welsh a week in school and their dad has gone... yeah? well he's
1: learning it I'm putting it down you know so it's I would have thought it'd be more than that Like, I, I would have thought it'd be I, I'm not surprised that oh, it's still low 20% actually speak Welsh but then that only 7 is it 7 or 9% speak some yeah I would have thought there'd be a large proportion of people who speak some that's a very good point actually so um, maybe we could take it a
0: little more seriously at face value they maybe think, you know they're like, well, I can get by. I'm still surprised it's only twenty percent.
1: That's crazy. And is there a percentage for how many people speak well, would say well, claim Welsh to be their first language as well? No,
0: no, doesn't have to be first language. I think it's just the the twenty percent can include bilingual people. Definitely.
1: That's hmm. funny. Yeah. So, so I'm just maybe the bit that I've just been exposed to just happens to have such a high percentage. I didn't realize it was that low.
0: Well, get ready for this because. 2017-18, the population percentage who can speak Welsh has dropped to 19%. Brace yourself. 2018-19, the most recent results, show another drop, 18%. So are we going to continue dropping 1% until in 18 years the language is just gone? And there is there is like a real danger of that happening. It is happening all over the world. But,
1: I mean... When you say all over the world, are you talking about it's happening to Welsh or just to other oh, languages you'd classify as similar? I, w- I meant other languages. It Like, languages are dying off. So,
0: I mean, why do you think this is happening? Why do you think this is happening specifically uh, to, to
1: Welsh in Wales? Oh, I, I, don't know. I, I suppose it's just because the people who do speak Welsh, it, even if you do learn it and speak it, when you meet new people, often it's around work or social situations and often that environment is english first and I, I heard once that the language you speak with someone is the language you first speak with them as you introduce the language in which you're introduced to them as right so even if let's say you and i meet in a pub or at the work even if we were both to speak welsh we would because we introduced ourselves as english always then speak in english
0: you sort of you're setting up how the relationship, you're setting a precedent in your
1: relationship yeah and I, th- I just think that's a big part of it. Like I, my cousin and her husband, um, this is the same thing. They the, and my other cousin and her husband, they sp- they both speak Welsh, but they speak in English to each other because that's just how they met. Whereas my cousins speak in Welsh because they grew up together speaking Welsh.
0: Okay, so Kate, our Welsh teacher in Sunken Hundred, she speaks Welsh, obviously. Husband speaks Welsh. They speak to each other in English because that's how they started off she only learned Welsh after they'd been married and so the precedent was set. they speak English to each other so yeah I completely get what you're saying so but but, okay so why do we think this is happening uh yes in Wales but also
1: worldwide I think you mentioned it a big part is globalization um and kind of the mix of different cultures and, and and actually I think there's a lot of positives that come with that right? Like the ability to learn and share about other viewpoints. Yeah. um, Ways of being. Uh, I think there's no better way to overcome disagreements than have you been exposed to another person's side of the story Um, to learn or feel that just because you were taught something or learned something to do something one way, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best or right way. Absolutely. Um, So I think there's a lot of positives to it. The the world is more accessible now. It's, it's
0: cheaper and easier to travel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cultures are mixing all the time. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, but, of course, there are challenges to that, where I think you do get watering down of cultures, of languages. The, like, homogenization of
0: just all these youth cultures, particularly, are susceptible to it, right? They're so so coming together, yeah. I mean,
1: look at where we are. We're in New York, a perfect example. Um, you know, there's never been a better example of a melting pot uh, of things coming together. But the same on the other side of that, you've got the problems of things like gentrification in areas where, you know, there's, that's the downside of globalization. Um, and I think another one is, um, yeah, the, the loss of old languages, because people do revert to the easiest form. You're right. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's just ease. So in countries
0: where a smaller, older language is forced to compete, as it were, with a larger, more widely spoken language, there's only one loser, and it's always the minority language. One notable example of this is the languages of the Native American tribes, mm. of which there were there was so. I remember reading a quote actually. Um, some some linguist or historian, perhaps, he said that there was more diversity in the languages of the Native American tribes of North America than there is amongst all of the countries of the Old World, Europe. Wow. The last speaker of Unami the language of the Delaware tribe, died in 2002. And he had had no one to speak with in his language since his sister died in
1: 1984. Oh, that's so
0: sad. I know. But I chose this one on purpose because every one of us knows at least one word from the Unami language that we'll live on because they gave the island of Manhattan its name.
1: No way. Yes, yeah, so there we go. Ah,
0: uh, oh, I've got more statistics. Okay. More statistics. Great so. It pans out. There are around seven thousand languages in the world today. Ninety-five percent of the world's population speak just three hundred of them. Half the world speaks just the largest sixteen languages. Hmm. So that, that that creates like a lot of minority languages. So if the trend is that minority languages get squeezed out into extinction by majority languages, that means there are. Thousands of endangered languages. UNESCO statistics show that 43% of the world's languages are officially endangered. More than 200 languages have become extinct in just the last 70 years, just since 1950. Yes, that's just proof it is happening now. It's a result of globalization, which we've said is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it has downsides. And as we become a more globally minded species, which is definitely a positive i just think we might want to remember our individual national heritages
1: totally right like i think if we all speak the same language wear the same clothes go to the same coffee shops drink the same drinks you know we all start to become carbon copies of ourselves and i think you know individuality is a big part of what makes us human Uh, and language is a big part of that yeah of course it can be divisive like if you think about you know when patriotism starts to teeter on nationalism, there's, you know, big negative side of it. But at the end of the day, we're part of, and I know we're part of one world, one planet. Um, but I don't I don't see any problem in like degrees of affinity within that, right? Like I'm, I'm Welsh, but I'm also British. I'm also European for now. Uh, I'm an American resident. Um, I'm an inhabitant of earth, right? Like who knows? Maybe one day far from the future, there'll be a podcast about, um, you know, there'll be two people debating the human language. And whether that will ever... Or which may well be a version of English. But I think, yeah, it's important to think about, you know... There's like the, the the joke or the old adage where, you know,
0: you get a bloke from Swansea and a bloke from Cardiff in the same room and they'll be having a go at each other until the Englishman walks in. Yeah. Yeah. But then they'll, the, those three will be... Uh, in contest, until an American walks in, and then they'll all have a go at him. But then what happens when a Frenchman walks in? Suddenly the English speakers will gather. up. So people just do that, don't they? It's like like a form of tribalism, and, well. So, to fully appreciate how remarkable the heritage of our language is, I thought it would be useful to recount a brief history of Wales and the usage of the language over the centuries. Welsh is actually the second oldest surviving language in Europe after... The Basque? Yes. What do most of us know about the history of the language, about the history of Wales? What about its name? Do you know where the word Wales comes from?
1: Camdag? Come or Just the English Western. the English version? Yes. No.
0: It's a Saxon word meaning foreigner. No. But what about Cymru? No. It's a Celtic word meaning compatriot. So, foreignness is very much in the eye of the beholder, in this mm. case. In I like that. Okay.
1: That's very telling.
0: To find out more on the history of Camria Camrag, I spoke to Ivor Apglin. Ivor Apglin is the National Poet of Wales. He's also a radio and television producer, writer and presenter. Interestingly, Ivor was born in London to a family who were part of a Welsh-speaking community that has been in London since the 1880s. Wow.
2: The Welsh language dates back some 1,500 years. Uh, It's it's one of the three descendants of the old Brythonic tongue, which would have been spoken throughout pretty much most of mainland Britain, from from Cornwall to Kent, all the way up through through Wales, the Midlands, north of England, into southern Scotland. The other descendants of the old Brythonic tongue are Cornish uh, and Breton. And Cornish and Breton are closer etymologically than either of the two are to, to Welsh. Of course, there is another group of languages which are represented in mainland Britain and, and Ireland as well. And these were Goidelic languages. The Goidelic languages have three daughters, uh, one of which is uh, Irish, modern Irish. One of, another is Scots-Gaelic. Another is uh, Manx, spoken on the Isle of Man.
1: So I didn't, I didn't know that about Cornish. I knew it about Brittany and Breton, but I, yeah, I didn't know that about Cornish. Well, I can't say I've ever
0: heard spoken Cornish, but some of the place names have a very familiar sound to them, and I think that's the only reason I was aware of the relationship. So we've got Brythonic, which, since the Iron Age, has been the language of the people of the lower two-thirds of the British Isles, the ancient Britons of Celtic heritage who will later become the Welsh, the Cornish and the Bretons. Why but, did they
1: make that split? Does anyone know? They just kind of like... We'll
0: yeah. Get to it. I'll tell you. Anyway. I, we know exactly why that split happened. Um... Goidelic, being spoken in Ireland, Western Scotland, and the Isle of Man, another language, Pictish, was spoken throughout most of Scotland, but that eventually gave way to Goidelic, and no one is really sure what Pictish sounded like. Some people think it is more similar to Brythonic, but we actually just don't know. We just know that it existed. Huh. Brythonic would have been the language spoken at the time of the Roman invasion in 43 AD, because the Romans came up from the course, south, yeah. right? Um, The occupying Romans would have spoken Latin, and it is thought likely that during the long occupation, the leaders, the elite, of the ancient Britons would have communicated with the Romans in Latin. So, therefore, they these are like the first bilingual people of the British Isles.
1: Would they have they would learn had to learn Latin to even communicate with them? I
0: mean, the Romans are here for like four hundred years. Okay, so it's so, a while to pick it up. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by, by you're three ninety nine. They've got it. So you know, there's there's children who, in the right circles, would have been exposed to Latin as children and would have learned the language in the organic way, the way that got children it. do. Um, but as evidenced by the fact that we aren't all speaking Latin, it was the the native language survived. The Romans departed from Britain around 400 A.D., leaving things open for the Anglo-Saxon tribes who invaded the Isles and pushed its inhabitants to the north. So to where, the where did
1: they come from, the Anglo-Saxons?
0: Um, the Europe mainland. The, so
1: different from the, obviously, Romans who come from Italy and the more southern side. Were they the Anglo-Saxons more northern Italy? I mean,
0: No, even more northern. They were Germanic mainly and from the lands that are
1: modern-day Denmark and the Netherlands.
0: The Danish got everywhere, because that, that's where the Vikings came from, a few hundred years later from there and the other Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Norway. You know we talk about the Normans, the Norman yeah. invasion? They're Vikings. They're, they're Vikings. They had only been settled in Normandy for about two generations when they decided to invade. The Vikings were, were the kings of England for a couple of hundred years, around from 900 to ten hundred, something or other.
1: Oh, ah, because I always thought Vikings were precursors to Celts, because of all the, like, red hair and pale skin. No, Vikings definitely I can say that because I mean, they probably they probably
0: were in existence long before they showed up in the history of the British Isles. They would have been around at the same time as the Celts, but the Celts were certainly there first. Hmm. Um Okay, so yes, yeah, so they were pushing the inhabitants to the north, to the west and south across the channel into Brittany. So it was the Anglo-Saxon invasion that pushed people to these extremities and that's when the the Breton crossed the water over to Brittany. You've got to remember the, the, the Celts, they started in mainland Europe. They know there's, there's land over there. Okay, it's retreating. Yeah. Um. By the 5th century, uh, the time of St. David, a language recognisable by present-day Welsh speakers was now being spoken in Wales. So we've separated from the, our, our, our sister languages. The Cornish are in Cornwall, the Bretons are in Brittany, we're in Wales. The Romans left around 400 AD. So just by the end of that century... We're starting to form a language that is unique from the others in certain ways.
2: For many generations, Welsh formed its own cosmos, as it were. It was it was a self sufficient language. It was it was the basis. It was the basis of a whole culture. It was the medium for the history of that culture, for the poetry of that culture, and also for the law of that culture. Um, that's something that's sometimes forgotten. But Welsh law uh, in the early and Middle Ages, the, the laws of Hawelvar uh, was you know, quite, a, quite an advanced thing. And, and the, the Welsh, you know, the Welsh language had, had evolved as a, as a, you know, sophisticated medium for discussing, um, you know, the finer, the finer points of the law.
1: So this was, so we're kind of talking about a time when Welsh was really starting to come into its own. As its own, you know, language and the language, I assume, of the, of the bards at the time.
0: Exactly, the strong bardic tradition in Wales, embodied the Cantarion. Yeah, the Welsh anthem, and you know, so things were for several centuries until.
2: When we talk about the the decline of the Welsh language, um, the, the, the three the three events that are often that are often mentioned are the the conquest the conquest of wales in in 1280 well 1282 to 1283 so wales thereby uh, lost her independence the acts of union uh, whereby uh, wales was m- more fully integrated within the uh, english political system and then in uh, the eighteen forties, eighteen forty-seven, the publication of the blue books, as they, they they've titled I mean, they, they were just blue books because that was the colour they used to for parliamentary parliamentary reports that have been commissioned on any number of subjects. This was a parliamentary report on education. Vesley.
0: the erosion of the language began, not surprisingly, with the conquest of Wales in the thirteenth century by the English.
1: And is it true that Wales was the first nation to be conquered by England? And the, or the, what would become the and then later lay the foundations of the so. yeah, empire. Because, I mean,
0: around this, the same time they were having a go at Ireland and Scotland. But yeah, they were the first victims of the empire, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in the centuries prior, the Welsh had weathered battles against the English in the form of the Angles and the Saxons at the border, mm-hmm. as well as Viking invasions on the coast. Uh, Soon after the Battle of Hastings, the Norman kings of England had set about invading Wales and the Norman conquest of Wales in the 11th and 12th century had seen most of Wales under Norman control at one time or another. This, however, was actually fairly short-lived. The Welsh had wrested back control of most of the land by the year 1101. In 1165, King Henry II of England, no longer a Norman king but of the succeeding house of the Plantagenets, was defeated by the combined forces of the allied Welsh princes and after that the Norman forces withdrew and concentrated their efforts on Ireland instead. South Wales from modern-day Monmouth to Pembroke remained under the Norman marcher lordships. Anyone who's familiar with Gerald of Wales, this is the period of time that he was chronicling when he travelled around Wales. Uh, He was actually an archdeacon and historian of mixed Welsh and Norman descent. Uh Then, in 1283, Edward I, King of England, led a campaign that conquered the lands, held by Llewellyn Griffith. This is the same King Edward who invaded Scotland, initiating the First War of Independence, as depicted in Braveheart. Uh Wales, though had lost its independence. It became an annexed territory of the Kingdom of England and wasted no time. One year later, the king signed a statute regulating Welsh to unofficial status. English is now the official language of Wales. And what year was that? 1284 when he did the statute. 1283 when they conquered the lands. It was, however, Henry VIII that put the nail in the coffin. This is the Acts of Union that Ivor Apglin told us about. Henry VIII, who came from the Welsh Tudor dynasty. Dynasty? Dynasty? Tomato,
1: tomato. Between 1535
0: and 1542, he signed the Laws in Wales Act, also known as the Acts of Union, which formally made Wales part of his kingdom and no longer an annexed territory or a principality.
2: From the Tudor period, uh, Wales was uh, integrated administratively Within uh, within the English system, there had been a slightly anomalous situation from the time of conquest until that point, where whereby some of the lands that had been taken in the conquest had been shired, but some were still in what were known as marcher lordships. And one of the stipulations of the Acts of Union uh, was that uh, the administration would be. Uh, through the English language, that there would be no posts given to anybody who didn't, didn't speak English.
0: Listen to some of the wording from the, the Laws in Wales Act. I'm going to do my best... Um... Town crier voice? Yeah, okay. Okay. So, hear ye, hear ye. Or maybe he'd be... Would he have a Welsh accent? No, he wouldn't. Not if he was reading the, the king's laws. Yeah. Okay, so hear ye, hear ye. Some rude and ignorant people have made distinction and diversity between the king's subjects of this realm and his subjects of the said dominion and principality of Wales. Which he said, which the king said, was creating discord among his subjects.
1: Okay. So I'm still just in shock from your town crier accent. That was um, spot on. His Highness, (laughs) therefore of a singular zeal, love
0: and favour that he beareth towards his subjects of his said dominion of Wales. It sounds so promising. You can imagine the people of Wales at the time. Have you heard about Henry VIII? Yeah, you know, Henry the boy. He's done really well for himself. He's written these <laughs> new laws. Yeah. He says he's done it because he loves us so much. I've got a really good feeling about it. <laughs> it's gonna be really good for us, you know. And then the kicker comes. No person or persons that use the Welsh speech or language shall have or enjoy any manner, office, or fees within the realm of England, Wales, or other the King's Dominion. So that's it. If you speak Welsh, you get you get no uh, what's the word? You get no...
1: No rights, basically. No rights. You, can't you don't get recognised as a just, citizen. You're
0: just a, like a peasant serf living on the lands of, wow. of, of, your, of your rulers. But speaking of that, you know, to the average Welshman in his rural dwelling, this made no difference. But certainly to the to the higher classes, well, that's it now. Welsh is out the window. We're not teaching it to the children because it's yeah, going to hold gonna them back, hold right? hold them back, yeah. Around the same period, don't forget, was the English Reformation the rise of protestantism you know the breaking away of the catholic church in rome
2: and when we talk about the acts of union it's it's interesting to note within a generation one of the other seminal events of uh, that period was the the ordering of the translation of the bible into welsh can't overemphasize how important that was the welsh at that time were quite religiously conservative and perhaps more uh, likely to sort of support the old catholic um, tradition, and they certainly, they certainly weren't going to embrace the new Protestantism if it was in a language they didn't understand. And of course, at that time, the vast majority of the, of the population of Wales would have would have known no know English. You know, only the only the aristocracy would have would have would have been fluent in English. You know, the Tudor authorities were very worried about the possibility of uh, having another island, but right on their doorstep. Uh, so they ordered the translation of the Bible into Welsh.
0: Because the Reformation had largely failed to take hold in English-ruled Ireland. And one of the reasons put forward was that it had been imposed upon the people by a foreign
1: ruler in a foreign tongue. Hmm. So they held on to the prior adopted Catholicism.
0: Yeah, and modern-day Ireland proves that, right? Still largely Catholic country.
1: But a big part of it was because it was being instigated by, far- by foreigners.
0: Yeah, I think so, and also, you know, people hold to their faith. You you got to have a good
1: reason, I mean, you to to just switch religion. Well, so, why did it happen so easily in England? I mean, we say it probably wasn't easy, but
0: well, it wasn't. I mean, if you think about it, they were they were burning people left, right, and centre for being for being Catholics. It was it was a hard fought battle all round. But the I suppose I'm just focusing on the idea of imposing that. On your on your foreign, or slightly more foreign
1: subjects. Yeah, versus the ones that are closer to you, right? It's always easy to influence. Sphere of influence.
0: Exactly. So, in 1563, a law was passed in the name of Queen Elizabeth I, instructing the Anglican bishops in Wales to arrange for the translation of the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer into Welsh. That's Elizabeth I, last of the Tudors, the Protestant daughter of Henry VIII and the successor to her sister, Mary, the Roman Catholic Queen. And so... The William Morgan Bible, the standard Welsh Bible, was published in 1588. William Morgan, Bishop of Llandaff and St. Asaph, translated the Old Testament and published it along with a revised version of an earlier translation of the New Testament done by William Salisbury in 1567. So the New Testament came first? Yeah, the New Testament was translated along with the Book of Common Prayer in 1567 and published in London right after the Queen commanded it. It was 20 years later that the complete Bible became available. And when I say available, I mean these editions well, these with the big, heavy volumes meant for the church lecterns. I saw one this summer in the library at St David's Cathedral, and it's huge. It wasn't until 1630 that a smaller version was published for use at home, known as a Bible Bach. Interestingly, in Cornwall, around this time, the imposing of English-language prayer books on the Cornish-speaking and still largely Catholic people sparked a failed rebellion. That was the starting point for the sharp decline of spoken Cornish. That and the refusal of Cornish translations of the Bible. They actually said, no, we're not giving them Cornish translations of the Bible. I, I honestly don't know why the Welsh were spared yeah, that fate poor, at that time. But Cornish. The, the, the Welsh were given the, the Bible in, in, um, in their language, and there we go. It's worth noting that the Bible had not long been widely available in English. The Tyndale Bible, it's called, translated into English from the Hebrew and Greek, preceded the Morgan Bible by only 53 years, published in 1535. And then 1611 would herald the arrival of the King James Version,
1: still widely used today. Okay. So it's a pretty quick escalation and then... Stop. <laughs> We've settled on it. This will do. Right, this one. Yeah. No, no, no more changes. In the late 1700s,
0: men such as Reverend Thomas Charles of Bala and the preacher Griffith Jones introduced Sunday school to Wales. This is surprisingly significant. They first set up the schools to teach literacy to children who worked in service during the week. Funded by philanthropy, learned and religious men took it upon themselves to teach the deserving poor to read and write, chiefly so that they could then read scripture. That's where the term Sunday school comes from. It was ordinary literacy schooling done on a Sunday for those who could not attend in the week.
1: Oh, so it had nothing to do with religion.
0: Only only in the sense that, okay, well, now you can read, so here's a Bible to well, read.
1: So we got, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, you know, they probably were expected to a- attend the normal service as well. The oh, so there, it was. It was attached
1: to a, a, a Sunday service. It probably took place in the chapels,
0: you know, in the in like the, the room that we all have the tea and Welsh cakes now would have been the Sunday school room or something, you know. Okay, so now we get to the blue books of eighteen forty-seven. Oh, blue books, my favourite book. Ivor Aplin mentioned earlier. These blue books contained the findings of an inquiry into the state of education in Wales, carried out by three English commissioners. At this point I want to introduce another contributor to today's episode, Helen Prosser, Director of Teaching at the National Centre for Learning Welsh, former chairperson of Cymdeithas Iaith, and a lifelong teacher of Welsh.
3: In 1847 there was a very famous report which came out called The Treason of the Blue Books where three English people who weren't Welsh-speaking were sent into Wales. These were church people, and people in Wales were predominantly chapel-goers and monoglot Welsh speakers. And this report was published, it was a damning report, saying that people in Wales were ignorant and that it was mainly the Welsh language holding us back.
2: It's been asserted by the early 18th century the Welsh people were amongst the most literate in in Europe, but of course they were literate in Welsh. Wales in the 1840s was a... You know, a Discontented place. It was first first throes of the industrial revolution. You know, widespread poverty. The authorities were worried about the, the possibilities of revolution in the 1830s. were are only some sort of, uh, 40 40 years after the French Revolution, which had sort of shook Europe to its core. So anything anything that made the people different and less less easy less easy to rule, i.e., they didn't speak a language which which the, which the ruling authorities did, would be viewed with suspicion. And so the the commissioners who conducted the investigation into Welsh education in the in the eighteen forties, you know <laughs> they, they they proved what they set out to in a, in a sense that, you know they they were completely unaware, therefore, that perhaps the people they were talking with were actually literate, but they weren't literate in the only language that counted to them, i.e. English. But, you know, so they were dismissed as a, as a ignorant an ignorant people, whereas in fact people of wales at that time were at least as literate as, as their, their their brothers and sisters in, in england next door probably more so
1: so basically we're talking what we're hearing in these blue books is fake news <laughs> yes that's what i'm hearing
2: it's, yes it's propaganda. absolute
1: fake news based on just three people's bigoted opinion
0: and remember that at the time of the report, in Victorian-era Wales, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. There's mass migration from rural areas to industrial towns. We truly were a nation of working-class people at that time. Listen to this description of the average Welsh person from the report. He is left to live in an underworld of his own, and the march of society goes completely over his head. Like, <laughs> that's just, that's just because you don't know what this person's saying... Just because you can't understand them, you assume them to be ignorant and like just his and s-
1: stupid. Yeah, top. As top. we'd say,
0: um, the language in the in the report is remarkably similar to the rhetoric of imperialists at the time, who framed British colonialism abroad as the empire benevolently bestowing the gift of civilization to ungrateful, uncomprehending natives.
1: Sounds a lot like our current sitting president as well.
0: Also consider that just sixty years ago, Britain had lost control of its American territories in the Revolutionary War. In their territories of India and the West Indies and New Zealand, they were having to quell increasingly frequent insurgent native rebellions. Mm. Across the Channel, the monarchy and ruling elite had just been overthrown in the French Revolution. There were uprisings and rebellions in Ireland. In northern England, there was residual anger from the Peterloo Massacre and unrest among the working classes, calling for parliamentary reform and fair representation. Gideon, what was
1: the Peterloo Massacre?
0: The Peterloo Massacre was... It started out as, as a, a protest. There was around six to 8,000 people gathered in St. Peter's Field in Manchester, and uh, they were protesting... Unfair treatment by Parliament, lack of representation um,
1: of workers, or just people in the north? Just,
0: just of workers, but of people in the north, because they felt that Parliament looked after its own kind, and they were the working classes up north that no one bothered to, to, to you know, to care about. Mm. Um, and armed cavalry charged into the crowd. Uh, they killed around sixteen people, I think, but the number of injured was like five hundred, and. You know, obviously this is just an attack on people's rights to protest. It's, um, th- the country was still smarting, if you will, from it. It's called Peterloo. It was a joke from Waterloo. Petersfield, Waterloo. Uh-huh. Um, and on a similar theme, the Rebecca riots in Wales against unfair taxation on the agricultural community had just been extinguished.
1: Rebecca's field? <laughs> what? Was it in Rebecca's field?
0: No. Do you know what the Rebecca Riots is? No. The Rebecca Riots was, as I've said, um, a protest against unfair taxation on the agricultural community. They would go around, uh, so basically, t- to transport your livestock or your goods, I think, of any kind. Like, it could be your crops. Hello, Uh To transport your um, your your wares, you had to travel on certain roads to get to market. And they had these toll gates which was so expensive, it was it was almost prohibitively oh, so. Oh, it's just like the Seven Bridge, then. They got rid of it. Have they? It's free. They haven't got rid of the bridge. Oh. It's still there. The bridge is free now. Well, they've finished paying it off, have they? I suppose. They must have. I mean, they must have finished paying it off years ago. It was like seven quid by the end of yeah, it. But, so, the, okay, so there's these toll gates, prohibitively expensive, got to the point where people were unable to make money because they are just being taxed left, right, and centre. right. So they were going to burn in the toll gates. So the men would do it dressed in women's clothes so that they wouldn't be noticed on their way or the way back Mm. from committing the crimes. So these men dressed as women causing all this um, uh, damage to property, they were called the Rebecca rioters. Rebecca was Isaac's wife from the Bible. And there's a verse that blesses her and her offspring. It says, and let thy seed possess the gate of those who hate them. The toll gates in this case. Does the job. So there you go. So it does seem plausible, at least, that as the Empire faced insurrection and sedition on all fronts, it might seek to avoid future problems closer home by eliminating the remaining differences between the citizens of Wales and their English-speaking ruling classes. Political insecurity has been the motivation behind all cultural oppression and suppression throughout history. Assertion of independent cultural identity inevitably leads to political autonomy, and that's what they wanted to quash.
1: And also, probably just to send some good messages back home, with all the news of you know places falling... To be For them to be able to point to Wales and say, hey, but look what the fantastic um, work we're doing there. You've still got a handle on them. Yeah. And so
0: began the active suppression of the Welsh language in earnest.
3: Really, by the end of that century, there was a scheme operating in schools in Wales called the Welsh Knot, where Welsh was prohibited in school. And if a child was heard speaking Welsh, they'd hang the piece of wood saying WN standing for Welsh knot around their necks and the child wearing it at the end of the day was caned
0: There is apparently some contention as to how much of this was done with the cooperation or at least the acquiescence of the parents. It is very likely that at this time the notion that English was the language of progress and prosperity had pervaded the national conscious Uh, To this day there are assertions made by some apologist historians that the practice met no resistance that the welsh unanimously agreed to willfully abandon the language mm. you can imagine the the ruddy-faced welsh blinking as they as they come out into the the you know the, the light of civilization as their english-speaking <laughs> saviors yeah beckoned them into the light <laughs> i just i find that difficult to swallow i find that unlikely
1: I, what year are we in now
0: um we are the Welsh knot is late eighteen hundreds, okay, like eighteen seventy something. So shortly after the Blue Books. Okay. Uh, one is one the the Welsh knot is seen as a, a direct consequence of the findings of, of the Blue Books. At, 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 all around the Industrial Revolution. All around the Industrial Revolution, and don't forget, the um, Blue Books were an educational inquiry. So for this to be introduced into schools mm. it, okay, know, that's there, the is, correlation. there is definitely a direct correlation there um, and reports of the welsh knot persisted in some schools obviously not all until as late as the 1940s wow
2: yeah the welsh knot f- fits into a sort of europe-wide pattern of and indeed probably worldwide pattern of uh things you do to discourage children from speaking languages that you don't want them to speak. Um, I've met uh, a Cherokee who, who said, who, who talked of children having their mouths washed with soap when they use that dirty tongue. Uh, boys being made to wear a dress to shame them. Uh, in, in Brittany, apparently they used to hang a, hang a, a clog around somebody's neck to to show them, you know, this is a boy who will be wearing clogs, he will never aspire to leather shoes because he insists on speaking, you know, the, uh, the, the lower status tongue.
0: A similar system of institutional school punishment was used by the French after the revolution in pursuit of linguistic unity, they called it. To modernise France, it was deemed that... All regional languages, including Breton, must disappear, and the chosen method was once again to beat it out of the children in the schools.
1: Linguistic unity. I mean, God, talk about spin. Because the, w-
0: France had tons of regional languages, still does, but there was a time when they were trying to purge them, mm. when they were uniting the,
1: the republic. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure some pretty smart people could make some pretty good arguments around the reason for doing it. The, as in the, the linguistic the yeah the, the positive and the binding effect but the positive you know the, in terms of industry and i'm sure you know when you position it in that way i'm sure you could string together some very positive reasons for having more cohesion yeah
0: and it's likely that after, particularly after the revolution that there was uh you know a lot a lot of unrest I mean people maybe some people didn't like it and just the idea of making everyone the same in it together liberty egality fraternity yeah
1: and the abilities for commerce right for early you know trade you know if you talked about potential for prosperity for you and yours for years to come you could see a way in which you know as a parent you'd go well yeah if if, if this is going to enable my child far greater opportunities in the future in the same way now that we you know might teach a, um you know our children to speak spanish or mandarin you know you might want to think yes. about that um and this belief that speaking a minority
0: language would hold you back in life was vehemently expounded at the time. Listen to this article from the Times around 1890. Actually, do are you, you
1: going to you gonna do another Cockney I Isaac? think you should. All right, go on. So this is the Times,
0: 1890.
1: <laughs> the Welsh language is the curse of Wales. Its prevalence and the ignorance of English have excluded, and even now exclude, the Welsh people from the civilization. The improvement and the material prosperity of their English neighbours. Their antiquated, semi-barbarous language, in short, shrouds them in darkness. <laughs> oh, I
3: love it. <sighs> oh, I don't know where
0: that came from. Remember the statistics from earlier. Around the time of this article, around 55% of the population of Wales spoke Welsh. A generation later, that figure has dropped to 35%. The suppression was working. And at that rate, the language would be lost in two generations unless someone took action. And so someone did. That's right. The 1900s saw huge amounts of Welsh language activism, a direct challenge to the status quo of English dominance in Wales.
1: So why in this point of history, Gideon? And is there anyone or any people that we have to thank for that? there are many heroes of this uh of this story of activism in
0: the 1900s is one that we talk about particularly later on and why at this point in history as as opposed to earlier when you know things were just as bad um i wonder if just the 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 common man the common people i should say were were finding empowerment there was a lot of movements at the time um Women's suffrage being run, the rise of Chartism, which was, um, which was a push for a vote for the working classes. Mm-hmm. Um, Irish won their independence in nineteen twenty-one. You can imagine the Welsh across the water thinking, "Well, hold on a minute."
1: It's not, so, it's not. too dissimilar when you know you have something like the the Basque region, and then there's a call for you know a Scottish independence vote. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, you see, none
0: that. of this stuff happens in a bubble. Exactly, um, you also had Marxism, which was mm. expounding the emancipation of the working classes. That the Marxism movement hit Britain in the late eighteen hundreds, I think. So here we are in the early nineteen hundreds. I think people are just they're just emboldened. That's, I hate that word because it's so associated with Trump. Is it? Yeah, people talk about the um, the far right feeling emboldened. Oh, I never heard that. Okay, I so can't maybe, like it. Maybe I can use it. So people are just feeling emboldened that they can they can have a go. In 1925, at a nationalised Sedvod, Plaid Cymru, the Party of Wales, was established. One of the founding principles of Plaid was to promote the revival of the Welsh language, creating a bilingual society. They say that specifically. We don't want to expunge English. We want a bilingual society, which I think is a noble cause.
1: Well, that's just because three years prior to that, you actually had the establishment of the Erodh, which was established by Sir Ifan Ab Owen Edwards. Um, as a way to connect people around the Welsh language and get, especially young people, um, to play and socialise in Welsh. I think it's in May uh, every year. Uh, there is actually a, a message of peace that goes out from the earth, um all around the world, uh, and it really believes in promoting kind of all kind of languages, especially dying languages, um, and helping you know young people who. Um, maybe get you know, ostracised for their culture, religion, language, disability, or sexuality.
0: And you found out about this for, through the New York Welsh, was in New York
1: Welsh, yeah. We were, we were just did a, we put out our own message. But um, a lot of celebrities, Welsh celebrities, will, will put a message out on that day.
0: That's very cool. I actually didn't know that. That had, that was not in my research.
1: Um, okay, so it was the
0: '60s that saw the most activity. Um, it's a time of reform. Um, and the assurance of equal rights for citizens everywhere, the civil rights movement, Stonewall, etc. Uh, the Catalyst in Wales appears to have been a BBC radio lecture titled "Tunged ur Giaith, which means Fate of the Language, delivered by our hero, Saunders Lewis. He was one of the founders of Plaid Cymru and one-time leader of the party. Someone who knows a bit more about the subject than I do is Rodri Glyn Thomas, uh, president of the National Library of Wales and former Plaid Cymru Assembly member.
2: Soldiers Lewis was uh, an academic, a poet and a dramatist, well-known in literary figures. But in terms of Kymdeithas Riaeth he is known for his famous radio lecture, Tunger Riaeth, The fate of the Language, which was broadcast in February of 1962. Uh, when he called for radical action to save the Welsh language and the Welsh heritage. And he felt that uh, nothing was being done at all to to save the Welsh language, and therefore uh, it, it needed nothing short, in his words, of a revolution to save the Welsh language. And it was a call to arms, really.
0: The radio lecture was delivered around the time of the 1961 census that showed Welsh speakers now made up only 26% of the population. Now, in 2019, maybe we are numb to these low figures, but back then, especially to someone like Saunders Lewis, it was very alarming, and you know, and rightly so. He was witnessing the end of the language as he knew it. Lewis did not hold back in his broadcast from using strong words. Uh, it was delivered in Welsh, so I will...
1: You're in the english translation i would
0: i would uh, not that i translated it myself at all but uh, i will. i will read it now in english for uh, for our listeners so he says the whole economic tendency in great britain i feel like i got to do a voice do a do else. it it's like it's it's rude against the english if i don't do a voice okay <laughs> so the whole economic tendency in great britain with the ever increasing centralization of industry is to drive the welsh language into a corner Ready to be thrown like a worthless rag on the dung heap.
1: Well, I would rally behind that as a call to arms. Mate,
0: he's got some. He's got some fiery language, and he, you know he doesn't see the Welsh as blameless in the matter at all. Oh, interesting. He, got, he says, "Let us turn to the Welsh people themselves, lest the mote in the Englishman's eye causes us not to see the beam in the eye of the Welshman." Later on, he says, "All Wales was satisfied with its complete suppression."
1: So he's basically suggesting that there's some degree of complicity in this.
0: Yeah, just, he. I mean, in the same way that we're, we, we're sort of acknowledging the phenomena of people not taking responsibility for the fact that they might want the language to survive and just letting it be down to someone else, he's, he's, he's calling that out. He's saying that's not going to work. He finishes his, his, his lecture with these rallying words. Let us set about in seriousness and without hesitation to make it impossible for the business of local and central government to continue without using Welsh. Let it be insisted upon that the rate demand should be in Welsh or in Welsh and English. Let the postmaster general be warned that annual licences will not be paid unless they are obtainable in Welsh let it be insisted upon that every summons to a court should be in Welsh it will be nothing less than a revolution to restore the Welsh language in Wales success is only possible through revolutionary
1: methods mm. so so he was he the first then to start actually issuing demands back at kind of the English rule saying we you know you will have a no He's not the first to think of it. hes I think he's
0: just the most... Vocal? Yes, that's the word. He's the most vocal. I mean, he's got this platform. Uh, I mean, I, I know that he was a historian. Uh, he was a, a writer and a poet. So I assume that's why he was approached to do this BBC radio lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, he certainly... He, he was known before and so was just given this platform, he could be be he could be, get his voice heard. The peaceful methods of protests he's talking about, that he suggests, were were not his idea at all. They were, in fact, inspired by a little act of rebellion in Llangenach in the 50s by a couple called Mr and Mrs Beasley. This is great, this is, but... The I'll, Beasleys. The Beasleys. I'll keep it brief. Okay. They lived in a district where 9 out of 10 of the population were Welsh-speaking, where the councillors of the local government were Welsh-speaking, but... When their note for the local taxes arrived, it was in English, and Mr and Mrs Beasley refused to pay their taxes until the demands were in Welsh. They were summoned many times to appear before the magistrate's court, where they refused to participate in court proceedings until it was done in Welsh. The bailiffs came on three occasions and carried away all of their furniture. This went on for eight years until finally the Beasleys received a bilingual tax demand, which they promptly paid.
1: Wow, what a story. Uh, and,
0: and, and it's brave, you know, because they're losing their stuff.
1: And the Baylands don't bring it back. In eight years. Yeah. And it's, what, uh, what, a, what, a, what a mark of, you know, actually holding out for, you know, what you believe in. To make this episode a little easier to digest, given that it is a little longer, we've actually split this episode into two parts. They're both already out, so it should already be in your download queue if you want to listen to it. And that's the end of part one.